0: Hi, guys. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. On today's episode, I play an interview that I did live at McNally Jackson, a bookstore in Soho, where I interviewed Jeff Halpern, no relation that we know of at least. I'm sure listeners are very aware of the attacks on Ilan Omar. And in fact, I appeared on Fox News to defend her. And I'll be releasing that audio along with an interview that I did with Adam Johnson about the media's representation of the Israeli Palestinian conflict and of the Ilan Omar story, and also of the Jewish voice and the way that the media represents a Jewish voice as if it's a monolith. But something that Ilan Omar's comments have both obscured and highlighted is the role of APAC. It's obscured it because people are trying to stifle any criticism of APAC as anti Semitism. But it's also, of course, forced people to look at it to some extent. But what's interesting is that while, of course, AIPAC does have a very outsized role in American foreign policy and in American support of Israel, there are other factors that cause Israel to receive such unquestioning and unwavering support from nations, including but not limited to the United States. And that's something that Jeff Halper thinks, and writes a lot about. He's an American-born Israeli anthropologist and director of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions. He's the author of Obstacles to Peace, an Israeli in Palestine, and War Against the People, Israel, the Palestinians, and Global Pacification, which was shortlisted for the Palestine Book Award. And he was nominated for the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize. Jeff and ICAHD are currently involved in a joint Palestinian-Israeli grassroots initiative, the One Democratic State Campaign, ODCS. And in this chat, you'll hear some questions from the audience members. And one of them is Stephen Sheehy, who is a professor of Middle Eastern Studies at William & Mary. And another one comes from Lara Sheehy, who is a psychologist and professor of psychology at George W., you can always support The Katie Helper Show at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. And dropping soon will be a bonus episode with Adam Johnson, where we talk about the Israeli Palestinian conflict's representation in the media and the Elon Omar controversy. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. Thank you so much, Jeff, for coming to talk to us. Um, We are, again, as far as we know, not related. But one of the things that I find really interesting, and we've met before, and we went around. I don't even remember where you were, but I watched you talk about the stuff that you're now writing about more, Mm -hmm. um, like the science of security um, and all these nano arms and things that someone like you um, Mm -hmm. and someone like me are not naturally interested in but you have done the work for the rest of us who aren't engaged and don't use that side of our minds. What is that, the right or the left side? See, I don't even know which side it is. Anyway, the math <laughs> science side. And before we get into that really important discussion, which is basically looking at why people are so supportive of Israel, um, I wanted to just have, give people the chance to, to learn about why you wound up in Israel in the first place. And you told me something once about how, as someone who studied anthropology, there were only a few, or maybe one place that you could go, um, to not feel like a neo-colonialist.
1: Ah, I see what you mean. No, I did feel like a neo-colonialist. Oh, okay. To feel without less the like one. neo. Right. <laughs> you know, everybody has a biography, and uh, everything. Everybody makes decisions, and I, um, I was very involved in the sixties. I'm kind of a I'm kind of a museum piece you know I'm like I'm like the um, Forrest Gump of the 60s I grew up in Hibbing Minnesota with Bob Dylan I uh, you know was in the anti-Vietnam War movement I was a draft resistor I was in Mississippi with the civil rights movement I was at the Chicago Convention in 1968 I was at Woodstock by chance but I was at Woodstock I did everything you were supposed to do except hate Ashbury, And um, when the 60s collapsed and we got Nixon and uh, neoliberalism, I just felt I wanted, maybe if I had lived in New York, it would have been different because here there's some substance. In the Midwest, in the 70s, under Nixon, it's pretty flat, pretty thin. And uh, I really didn't feel... You know that there was much here for me, and I wanted to go. Like Katie says, I wanted to go somewhere where I could be politically active, and we called it in those days another front in the revolution. And uh, because I'm Jewish, so I was able to go to Israel, not for good reasons, for colonial reasons, but because of that, I had, I had the right to go in a not the right to go, but in Israeli sense, a right to go and I could be a part of the society, and I could be active. And I felt that arena was more was more uh, meaningful. And there was a certain, you know, in those days in the 60s, we forget about it a little bit, but there was an identity politics a little bit. Not as aggressive as today, but, you know, you had Alex Haley's roots. So the African-Americans were like the first community to sort of Legitimize uh, you know ethnic backgrounds and so on instead of the melting pot idea that had been and then you had the Native American movement and you had Cesar Chavez, and I got caught up in that, but I 'm not religious in any way, and that's why I'm saying if I'd lived in New York, maybe there would have been enough Jewish political critical that it would have kept me here but but being that in Minnesota <laughs> was a little thin, and so that kind of also pulled me to Israel. But I was always in the, in the peace movement. I mean, I, I was never a real Zionist. Um, and um, and I went, you know, and I was from the very beginning active on the left. Um, you know, and, and in those days, Israel was a different place. It had a socialist government. Um, uh, you know, the occupation hadn't taken root. We all thought the occupation would end sooner rather than later. So, you know, you really had the idea that you were coming into a place that had progressive elements and you could help put the Middle East back together again in, in, in a certain way. Be a part of that project. Today, I mean, somebody like me wouldn't even visit the country, let alone move there, but in those days it was a little bit of a different uh, context.
0: I remember you saying, and maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but I I have a memory of you saying that something like you didn't feel like you could go to Kenya That's right. Because if you did that, like you felt some license. It wasn't that you didn't think that there was anything. That's right. That everything Israel was doing was okay, but you felt like you going there would be different from going to another country where you were kind of... In another
1: country, I would have been an expat. Yeah. I have a friend, I mean, I did work in Kenya, in Ethiopia, in Costa Rica. Um, You know, and I have a good friend from college I'm still in touch with who moved to Paris when I moved to Jerusalem. I always wonder... Who made the better decision? (laughs) I could have been 40 years in Paris by now. Um, But you know, and you married a French woman and his kids are French, but he's an expat. He's not going to get up and tell the French how to vote with his accented French. You know, and I'm in a different situation in Israel where I can be fully a part of the political scene.
0: Right. I mean, it's kind of subversive, right? Because it's a scene that's not it's an apartheid state, as you call it, right? But it's one where you happen to have some the access privilege. and membership and privilege, right. and but That's you're right. using it not to. Your point exactly. is to undo that element of it.
1: Exactly. We use our privilege in order to change things and push things and resist things in ways that Palestinians can't or it's difficult for them. Right.
0: So has your, um, you're your part of the, um, uh, you founded the Israeli coalition against housing demolitions, and now you're working on a one democratic state um, right. solution. Can you talk about that um, trajectory and what you think is kind of the the answer mm-hmm. to right. w- what's going to happen, where, where Israel is going to go? All these really simple questions that are even, <laughs> even easier than what your name is.
1: Yes. Well, I, um, you know, I've been involved with the Israeli peace movement for more than 40 years. Uh, and, um, you know, for many years, the end game was the two-state solution. I mean, we accepted that, the Palestinians accepted that already in 1988, if not before. And so, you know, we did all our work uh, politically with that, with that kind of goal in mind. But um, with the Oslo peace process, um, you know, uh, even though that was the agenda, you know, by the time we started our Israeli Committee Against house Demolitions in 1997, the Oslo process was in a state of collapse. Rabin had been assassinated in, in, in November 95. Netanyahu who had been elected the first time in 96 with a, on an explicitly anti-Oslo program, and it was clear that the occupation was re, reasserting itself, it wasn't going to end, and we had as the Israeli peace movement to re-engage in resisting the occupation. Uh, Which we began to do, we focused on the issue of house demolitions as a a very powerful way of giving people an insight into how the occupation works, what Israel's intentions are, the human cost of occupation. Until today, I have to say, so far the count is about 55,000 Palestinian homes that have been demolished by Israel since 1967 only in the occupied territory. Thousands more have been demolished and are still being demolished inside Israel itself, including, of course, about 60,000 homes that were demolished during the Nakba in 1948. So we're talking about a massive impact on a a small society. And uh, that was very powerful, but we were lacking, we've been lacking for the last 20 years. I mean, I would say, the two, first of all, I would say the two-state solution never existed, period. I mean, maybe in hindsight we see that, but Israel as a settler colonial movement was a unilateral movement to take over the country. It had no intention of recognizing the indigenous population, giving the indigenous population a state or any kind of sovereignty. It wasn't in the cards. But even, even discussion of it, even the possibility of it, was over uh, with the end of the Oslo process in the year 2000. You know, by that, in in 1993, when Oslo began, there were 200,000 settlers, which is still a pretty massive population in the Palestinian territories. Seven years later, when it ended, there were 400,000. So it's clear that the intention was not to detach the West Bank and Gaza and make it a separate state. Today, there's almost 800,000 israelis living in the palestinian territory so the point is you can't be in a political struggle without an end game you're not an actor you can protest you can resist you can have a campaign but but you're not really an actor if you don't have a political goal and a program and so it's only in the last couple years in the last two years that a number of us i would say a core group of maybe 50 Palestinians and maybe 20-some Israeli Jews have gotten together to try to formulate a program of a one-state solution. I have it even here. We have a 10-point program that I think is a very good program that bridges that gap. And that's what we're trying, we ha- we're going to launch probably in April as, a- as an actual movement. We call ourselves the One Democratic State Campaign uh, and uh, the idea is basically, well, I won't get into the whole thing now, but the idea is basically to transform the one apartheid state that Israel created that exists today into uh, a democratic state of equal rights for all its citizens. Which shouldn't be such a shocking idea for Americans. <laughs> uh, and that's the idea, not to destroy anything. It's inclusive. Uh, You know, it's really a win-win approach for everybody, but it's one in which everyone gets equal rights. In the country, the refugees return, and we begin to build a new civil society. That's kind of the the idea of our movement.
0: I think in order to kind of understand that program, which it would be great to return Mm -hmm. to what that will look like, something that I think a lot of people don't realize is why Israel is supported the way it is, because as you said, there's so many things, there's the um, Christian Zionist, there's APAC. there's guilt about the Holocaust. But as you put it in your book or in a talk you gave, guilt about the Holocaust doesn't determine Ireland's like, agenda. Yeah, yeah. They're a country, as you point out, that understands colonialism very well. That's right. And cool. so I think lots of times in the United States, we get kind of seduced or distracted because we're like, and this is exciting, look, popular opinion is turning, it's no longer um, a third rail issue, you're allowed mm-hmm. to criticize Israel without being called an anti-Semite or a self-loathing Jew. People still do that, but it's no longer or you know, like Peter Beinart did that right. study about young young Jews choosing mm-hmm. liberalism over Zionism and everyone's freaking out who's who's a hawker Zionist is freaking out. Everyone else is celebrating. But none of that totally matters. Like that's somewhat of creates the, the environment. But Can you talk about what you discovered when you were looking at why this occupation was still around in terms of the role of israel in the arms
1: yeah um yeah the the question that katie brings up in a sense how does israel get away with this (laughs) is the question i open my book with war against the people you know this is a conflict uh, i i would argue it's not a conflict but it's a settler colonial takeover Um, you know of, of the last hundred years you know with an occupation of 70 of 50 years you know tremendous human rights violations uh, uh, dozens of UN resolutions are ignored um, you know brutality on the southern border of Europe so it's very visible and it's in the news all the time it isn't in some far away corner of the world um, a Jewish country doing it no less in the Holy Land. I mean, you know, you've got all these elements together. And yet Israel gets away with it. In other words, it's its international position, at least among governments, not necessarily among the people, that's true. But among governments, its position improves all the time. And so that was the question I was trying, one of the questions I was trying to get at, how does Israel get away with this? And uh, I decided to, instead of looking down at the occupation, to look up, at Israel's place in the world. I have an amazing map that uh, I would show if uh, we had a PowerPoint here. And that is that um, Israel has a, a military, security, police uh, relationships with virtually every country in the world. Even countries that with which it has no diplomatic ties. Like Saudi Arabia is probably the best example of that. Um, so that, <clears throat> I won't get into the whole theory of it all, but, you know, there's two levels. First of all, Israel has, a technolo- has a tech- what I call technologies of repression. So they're able, if you're a co- uh, an elite <laughs> or a government, especially if you're not popular among your people, Israel will give you the tools to repress and control your populations. Uh, we see that in Egypt. You know very uh, very strongly in other places, but there's a bigger level, and that is global capitalism. I mean, we all live in a neoliberal capitalist regime that's closing down fairly rapidly. Uh, you know, 80 percent of people in this wor- world live on less than ten dollars a day. Uh, you know, you have an Occupy movement because even the young people in the middle classes in the global north are being excluded more and more. They can't get jobs, there's no job security, they can't get housing, they have no prospect of, of, the, of achieving the standards of living standards of their parents. And as the whole thing closes down and people are marginalized and the world is being destroyed <laughs> and wars today are resource wars, wars are against the people. You don't have wars anymore of governments, uh, states against states really, uh, armies against armies, the last major interstate war involving two or more powers was the Korean War. So that, so that essentially wars today are resource wars, counterinsurgency, uh, homeland security type thing against immigrants, against poor people, against restless middle class people, against people in the global south that are trying to to protect their resources to protect their sovereignty and uh, in the wars against the people that are really capitalist wars the united states that is the major power to try to keeping the capitalist system going does not have the proper weaponry you know f-35s are very good weapons if you're fighting the soviet union they're not very good weapons if you're fighting the occupy movement in new york um, or the southern border with Mexico or, or, you know, wars against the people anywhere. And Europe also doesn't have the proper weaponry. So Israel, what I'm trying to say is that Israel becomes a go-to state. It isn't that Israel is the only player, of course, but Israel is the, is the only major industrial, highly sophisticated, high-tech com- country that's been fighting a war against the Palestinian people. For the last 125 years and it has a laboratory if you have you look at the west bank and gaza as really a laboratory that you have millions of people at your disposal literally with no oversight you can do anything you want to with them you experiment you can't explain the attacks on gaza these massive attacks disproportionate attacks on the basis of the actual military threats the only way you can explain it, and I talk about it in my book, is that new weapon systems, security systems, surveillance systems, uh, systems of control are being experimented on and perfected on the Palestinians and then being exported. So Israel, I call it global Palestine, so that, so that in, in effect Israel becomes maybe the major player in terms of the enforcement of global uh, capitalist hegemony. You know, both in terms of individual countries that rely on Israel for these technologies but also globally. Uh, And so, uh, you know, and that's the quid pro quo that I'm trying to get at. In other words, Israel will deliver for you um, and in return you give it a pass in terms of the occupation. You know, so Israel's allowed to keep everything and, and keep its international standing you can criticize Israel that's fine we don't mind and, and matter of fact it's even good right. because it makes it look like we're really being uh, challenged and uh, it would, people don't like us and we're victims I mean that all feeds into the process as long as there's no sanctions and there's never been sanctions on Israel by the UN or by any government and so that's really in a sense the thesis of war against the people
0: um, which raises the question of the role um, of BDS, of course. Right. What does that achieve? What could that achieve? Is it a good strategy? There's a bit of a left-on-left, anti-Zionist-on-anti-Zionist yeah, debate yeah, about this with you know Chomsky and Finkelstein. Yeah, 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 I'm not yeah, sure yeah. If, the, if they still are saying this, but thinking yeah. it's not a good strategy. Right. They have no moral opposition to it.
1: Well, both Norman and, and, and Noam uh, are still two-state people. Right. <laughs> For reasons, it's hard to explain, maybe, but uh, so from that point of view, I suppose BDS is seen as demonizing one side or I, I don't know what exactly their their problem with it is. I mean, I mean Chomsky, I know, I've talked with him. He says, um, um, you just have to work with the American Congress. That's the only player, which I think is kind of silly in, in some ways. I mean, I think that's one thing you have to work with, but... You're not going to change the American Congress by itself without changing public opinion and all. At any rate, it doesn't matter. We've always supported BDS, uh, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, our organization. Even before it was called BDS, (laughs) we had a call to sanction Israel before even the BDS campaign. So we've always supported it. Um, But I have two problems with the BDS campaign as it's run. One is, of course, the main problem is that uh, it's become a standalone enterprise. In other words, it's, it's a tool that should be connected to an end game. When we boycotted South Africa, it was always the end game, that one person, one vote, that's where we're going in South Africa, and that's what all the boycott activities were about. Here, we're doing BDS activities, boycotts, investment sanctions, without a purpose? Why are we? Why are we BDSing? I mean, we can always delegitimize Israel. We can uh, open space for criticism with BDS. We can get people involved. I mean, that's all good, but it it it, it, it it's not a standalone project. It has to be connected to an end game. Um, the second problem is, of course, I, in my view, is the targeting. I don't think the targeting is good. I I don't like the H the Hewlett Packard targeting, Motorola, SodaStream. I mean, these. I mean it's not that, that these aren't good targets, but you know, you've got to explain so much. It's so tenuous, the tie. You know, I'm in favor of, of uh, trying to get the American government to stop uh, uh, military relations with Israel. Stop corporations in your city from doing research with Israel. Stop your universities, like CUNY, from having a relationship with a Technion. Which is, which is the IDF's laboratory of military technologies. Uh, in a sense, the, it's come late, but the uh, JVP's Deadly Exchange program is where I would go to show how the occupation is here in your community. JVP, Jewish Voice for Peace, has a program called Deadly Exchange in which they're trying to show uh, how Israel has penetrated the American police forces in terms of training, in terms of arming the police forces, bringing them to Israel uh, and so on in order to, to, to bring out that, um, that element of it. That's a good campaign. But again, it has to be tied to uh, an end game and that's where we come back to our, to our movement and that is we, we you know, um, hopefully, you know, in the next few months as our program comes out and we have, you know, We've been trying to sign people, Palestinians and Israeli Jews, as endorsers. We have several hundred signatures already. So we people probably see probably
0: get McNally Jackson too.
1: Right. So people see who we are and, 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 and everything. Um, that then I think if we can get this going with a major Palestinian voice, this one state program, then we'll have to come to the BDS movement come to the Jewish Voice for Peace, come to the U.S. campaign, to different Palestinian solidarity groups, churches and so on, and say, okay, we expect you now to link your Palestine support activities to an actual political program. And that's going to be the next stage. And hopefully, uh, if we can do that, that gives a certain direction and vision and program, a a whole political purpose, to all the different campaigns and activities that we're doing today.
0: Yeah. Um, Can you reveal a little bit of what this program will look like?
1: Yeah, I can say just, it's a 10 point program. And one of the things we, we agreed upon was that we would really try to develop a program that could genuinely be brought forward in the political arena. In other words, I can sit down I can close my eyes now, and make up a program that the left would like. I have all the the, the buzzwords. I know exactly. I could do it in a minute, and uh, and and my five friends would agree with me. The question is: the question is, how can we develop a program uh, that takes into account the different parties and the processes that is just? That's a very strong, clear program but that actually we could use, you know, the, we can gain support in the international political system, not so much among Israelis maybe, but among some Israelis, and that's what we've tried to do. So let me just, three points out of the, out of the ten. Maybe three and a half. One is, one is, we're talking about a constitutional democracy. One person, one vote. One parliament, equal individual rights for everybody a liberal democracy that's based on 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 citizenship a country that belongs to its citizens which is how the united states i mean i know it's ideal and 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 there's racism i mean i'm not saying that but in concept the united states is a country like other european countries that belong to their citizens rather than a country that belongs to an ethnic group or a national group or a religious group. In other words, to turn Israel-Palestine from what Israel is, which is an ethnocracy, uh, you know, a country that belongs to one particular group, just look at the flag and you can see that, into a Western democracy. Uh, so that's one point. The second point I want to mention is the right of return. The right of return is absolute refugees and the descendants there's no there's no question about it for Palestinians you can't get anywhere without that but it's not only a right because I think what our plan does is it reveals a political logic that's very compelling and that is that if the state is based on its citizens on a citizenry refugees are a part of that citizenry I mean the fact that you fled your country in a conflict, or you are driven out, doesn't mean you lose your civil status. So, in a sense, the idea of bringing everybody home again, to the citizen, bringing the citizenry back, and reconstituting the country, uh, you know, has to include the refugees. They have, the, you know, it, it, it's a, it, it's 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 a, a proper political process. It isn't only well they have rights and we have to bring them back but there's a, they are a part of the citizenry. Third point, um, and this is the hardest point actually, we talk about individual rights, collective rights. In other words, uh, um, unlike the United States, you know, in the Middle East and the most of the world, ethnic groups, national groups, tribes, clans, religions have all preceded the state. The state is a is a is a sort of a new uh, phenomenon, obviously, and uh, and so we have to acknowledge. We're not talking about Kansas, <laughs> you know, a bunch of voters. We have to acknowledge these collectivities that are in the country, and and give them their space. So the idea is a multicultural democracy. In other words, uh, it, it, there'll be equal rights. Uh, uh, you know, in one country, one polity, but that you can speak your language. Nobody's going to stop you from speaking Hebrew or Arabic. You can have the Hebrew University. You can have your literature. You know, refugees can come back as Palestinians and then integrate into society. So it's, it's very much like here. I mean, you have that here. You can be Amish. You can be a Satmer Hasid in Brooklyn. You can, be, you, know, you can be in a closed community if you want to be, or simply integrated into American society. You don't have to say that here, because that's a part of your, of your individual rights and rights of association. But there, uh, you know, with all the competition and the distrust and the history, we have to be very clear that all the collectiv- collectivities that are there can stay, that this is inclusive. It's not against anybody. And uh, now there's some Palestinians that reject that. Um, You know, they feel that recognizing the collective rights of Israelis um, uh, legitimizes Zionism or legitimizes settler colonialism. So there is another group that's parallel to us that we work with, but it is different, that rejects the idea of collective rights and says simply one person, one vote the problem with that of course is uh, one of the problems is that the Israeli Jews will be the minority in the country. They're already the minority between the Mediterranean and the Jordan River. So the Israelis aren't stupid. (laughs) You know, they say what's going to prevent the Palestinian majority in Parliament from doing to us what we do to them today. The tyranny of the majority. And so uh, we have to make it that, uh, that uh, there's a constitution and that parliament has no authority to pass laws to discriminate against any community. That's it, it's a safety net. So it doesn't give anybody any privileges, it doesn't cost the Palestinians anything, but it kind of reassures the Israelis and that's one of the mechanisms I'm talking about where we can move this forward. Um, <clears throat> and the last thing, the last point I want to make is that once we dismantle and decolonize, dismantle these structures of domination and create a level playing field, the idea is that then we'll be able to develop over the course of two, three, four generations a new civil society. In other words, the nice thing about collective rights is that they're very fluid. If this was a binational state, everybody would be locked into an identity. This way, uh, you can choose how much you want to be in your community, how much you want to be integrated into a lot wider society. And, and over the generations, just from the daily life, daily experiences, living together, working together, sharing a common political system, uh, a new civil society will emerge that we don't have today. You know, we don't have a name for the country. That will have to emerge. Uh, you know, we, there's this joke about that what would the country be called that's inclusive and you know you can call it palestine if you spelled stein s-t-e-i-n but anyway that says something the fact that there isn't an overarching civil identity and that would have to emerge and that's kind of the idea you know it's uh, it cuts through a lot of issues and i think it's very compelling with a very compelling political logic
0: Well, I have more questions, but I thought that because there's so many people here to see you and you're uh, n- not in town for a long time, we could open it up to questions and then
1: mm. maybe I'll
0: abuse my power to ask some more. Okay. But uh, how, how do we want to do this, McNally people, in terms of where they ask the questions from? Um, I can pass microphones
2: if you uh, are willing to great. do that. Oh, so
3: you're recording it this part of it?
4: Just so everybody
3: can hear. Oh, I have a big voice. I don't need a mic. That's why I was asking if you're recording it. So first, a compliment. The way you describe Israel's influence in the rest of the world is a perfect description of what used to be called the American empire, but is now a global, corporate, neoliberal economic empire. And just the US armed forces happen to be used as the enforcers of it, but it's not no longer American empire. But here's my question. I read your section on the electronic warfare weapons. There was one missing, so the U.S. Army has a uh, active denial system mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that they can direct towards a, a group of civilians, peaceful or or violent. And when they turn it on, their skin feels like it's on fire. That's right. And they'll run like hell. That's right. mm-hmm. This weapon's been in existence for a number of years, and I'm wondering if they've given it to Israel to use the Palestinians as guinea pigs. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned you mentioned that effect, but. I think this crowd and most Americans don't know that those weapons could very easily be turned on American services. especially since Obama signed the National Defense Authorization Act, which allows the Army to operate domestically. That's, that's right. right,
1: and that's my point: is that um, the Palestinians are the guinea pigs, and the uh, uh, you know they're just the middle level. I mean, the the weapons you're on the receiving end because Israel's not exporting the weapons to the Palestinians. You know, it's not making money or or political capital on the Palestinians, they're simply the guinea pigs in the laboratory and you're the customers or your police forces are the customers, your security. Um, And you see that certainly with the militarization of the police. Um, That's what this deadly exchange program is about. You discover all kinds of things. You know, I was in Georgia State University in Atlanta giving a talk and the students pointed out a building right out the window. It's called the Gillee Center. You should look it up, G-I-L-L-E-E, the Georgia International Law Enforcement Exchange Center, something like that, which is a black box on the campus of Georgia State University. Nobody can go in, nobody knows what goes on inside, and it's an Israeli uh, police training academy. Where they pull all the uh, American police from all over the country go there for training. And they bring them, and if you look it up, they do have a website. And if you look it up, you see all these pictures of American police at the Knesset and the Israeli police departments. Um, and it's funded by Home Depot, or by the guy, by Bernard Marcus, the guy that started Home Depot. Um, you know, the Israel weapons industry which makes the Uzi submachine gun, which is the most famous submachine gun of all, um, just opened a plant in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania for American law enforcement and for the 300 million gun nuts in this country, which is a huge market. And what they're doing is they're taking these military weapons that they produce, the Uzi, Galilee rifles, assault rifles, and so on, and compressing them into weapons that can be used by law enforcement or by civilians. So the Uzi is now a a pistol. So the next time your local policeman pulls you over he could easily be pulling a, 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 a Uzi submachine gun out of a holster. So this is all part of the militarization of the police that Israel plays a tremendous role in, including restructuring your police departments um because Israel's peddling the idea of a security state in which there's no more you know these firewalls between the FBI and the CIA and local police and the FBI and all these different jurisdictions are all broken down and the military and domestic security and police all work as one unit like in Israel which is the only western country that works that way and it's trying to use for example the association of of Chiefs of major American police forces as a lobby in Washington for this. There's all kinds of levels. Um, so you know, uh, you know, this is really an issue. That and and this is what I'm saying about BDS. The more we can make BDS, tie the BDS to what's happening here with your local police, for example, the more we can make the case that the occupation is here at home and and. You know, I often say that as your police force is being Israelized, you're being Palestinianized. You know, so you're actually becoming Palestinians from the point of view of being on the receiving end of these technologies. The specific question about um, aerial denial technologies, uh, Israel doesn't use um, these kind of microwave things. And there's other ones as well. You know, Israel helped develop the sonar one that makes a sound that you just can't stand. That, that, that But it doesn't use that. I think it's maybe used it once, but it doesn't use that as well. Israel uses instead... Um, first of all, Israel uses live ammunition instead of aerial denial stuff. Uh, and, uh, and then it's developed its own arsenal. You have skunk, which is a, a terrible smelling kind of a, of a thing. And you've got a kind of a... Um, a material that makes the ground um, like uh, glass, you know, very slippery and people fall down. You've got a lot of nausea things. That were, um, there's all, and in fact, in Belin, you know, Belin is this Palestinian community by the wall that's been fighting for years against the wall. You know, five broken cameras is the film that comes out of that. Um, they've collected in Belin. A couple hundred canisters of all different kinds of crowd control devices powders sprays um, uh, you know all kinds of all kinds of these things uh, because in fact uh, it's like a laboratory you know the israeli army knows at 10 o'clock every friday morning there's gonna be a group of palestinians and and maybe some israelis and internationals and, and uh, companies are there, both American companies, American military units, and Israeli companies are there to experiment with their crowd control devices. And one Palestinian fellow is, collect, collects every week the canisters and has a whole display of hundreds, of, a couple hundred canisters. So that, um, you know, I would think that that's really in a sense what's happening more, and that is that you see it with Janine, you see it with Gaza, you see it with Bilin, that, that in fact the, controlling the Palestinians isn't the problem, but they're using um, all different kinds of controls as, as experiments that then go into the marketing.
3: So the one I described is the only one they're not using?
1: It's one of the only ones right. uh, that they're not using, yeah.
0: There's another question here, um, sure. if you can pass the mic. <clears throat>
3: Thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, it's my understanding that uh, when South Africa did away with apartheid, uh, there were certain deals that were made uh, just to get on with the reconciliation process, where a lot of the central banking functions remained in the hands of the same people who had uh, persisted throughout apartheid. And that's created some persisting problems uh, afterwards. I noticed that the seventh point of your ten points is uh, economy and economic justice, but I just wondered if you could say a bit more about what lessons have been learned about uh, what hasn't gone well Uh, after North uh, died in South Africa?
1: Look we uh, we have to flesh out a lot of these I mean these are right now it's kind of they're almost bullet points the more political ones are more thought out other ones like the economy and um, the land regime and things like that still have to be worked out you know, it's a problem because we obviously, I think all of us behind this program, would like to see some kind of a socialist economy. Um, But uh, unfortunately the vast majority I think of Palestinians and Israelis together would prefer a neoliberal economy. So uh, uh, as a matter of fact I even think uh, Uh, you know somebody asked me once uh, what would happen to the Israeli this whole Israeli military industry and I think the depressing answer is I think the Palestinians are more than happy to integrate into that industry. Um, So just a a word about the so that has to be kind of fleshed out but the difference of course is um, that the Palestinians have a lot of resources that would once once the playing field is, is leveled, I think they'll achieve an economic parity fairly quickly. Uh Shir Hever, who's an Israeli political economist who writes about the occupation, points out a lot of complementarity between the Palestinian economy and the Israeli economy. The Palestinian economy is suppressed, obviously, but that you know it, it's it's based on an educated population, there's a very vibrant high-tech Telecommunications sector of the Palestinian economy. Um, there's a lot of Palestinians in universities today. And of course, the Palestinians have a diaspora that is actually no less wealthy and no less educated than the Jewish diaspora that kicked in for Israel. So I think, you know, again, given a, le- a, a level economic playing field. Um, that they could achieve a parity fairly quickly. They're not as depend, they're certainly not as dependent as South Africa was on the World Bank and and financing massive housing uh, and, and land redistribution. All these things, you know. And South Africa, of course, was required to pay the debts of the apartheid regime, so it never had the extra money for its own for its own projects. You don't have that in Israel Palestine. I think it's it's an easier issue to deal with economically, even though we still have to go through a process of trying to, I, I, whatever political system we come up with that, that we suggest is going to be a minority one and we're going to have to try to fight for it, I think.
0: It's funny, that that question you asked about, um, that the, you raised, where you said that probably if there were a, a one-state solution, mm-hmm. it wouldn't be like... All these um, formerly disenfranchised, persecuted people would then have rights and use those to stand in solidarity against the um, arms
3: yeah, uh, industry, yeah.
0: right? and it's funny because it reminds me of lots of people. Like, well, if if there if there's one state, like, or or two state people who are just anti, basically anti-Palestinian, they'll be like, well, what if we give them rights and then they impose Sharia law or something? You know, to have this Islamopho- That's Well but it's funny because this is like the other side of that question of course it's a lot more i think kind of relevant mm-hmm. or um likely but it is this hard thing because what are you really fighting against and fighting for right so you're using the you're kind of using the, the arms um industry and the nanosecurity state mm-hmm. I- industry mm-hmm. as a narrative to rightly provoke outrage and awareness about mm-hmm. what Israel's is doing right but then ultimately hopefully then you have a one state and that's still there but Mm -hmm. then you just work on it as a one state and i'm not being like a a, what like dismissing the human rights in the present moment it's Mm -hmm. not like oh Mm -hmm. why should we care about this if we still have Mm -hmm. nano arms technology i don't care it's all superficial if these people have rights obviously like the the daily lives of palestinians are important Mm -hmm. and relevant Mm -hmm. and that's a goal unto itself but is that what it would look like? We'd have more. There'd be a one-state solution with equal rights and equality, and then from there, you, you would. Mm-hmm. Let's say you'd, you wouldn't have to work on the housing demolitions, right? In theory,
1: that's right.
0: You know that's not an issue, and then you can only now you can focus more
1: mm-hmm. on the
0: arm stuff and like the death exchange programs mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, what what does it even look like?
1: Yeah, I mean the uh, you know liberation of Palestine, if you want to put it that way, or the, the um, creating this one equal state is kind of almost a local issue. I mean, that has to do with Palestinians and Israelis and trying to rectify a, an unjust, oppressive situation. Um, and it would have some impact in terms of the of the wider Middle East, maybe, well, at least we hope so. But, you know, it wouldn't have the impact on uh, on the global system that um, um, so that, in a sense, you know, this book "War Against the People" is something else. It's saying, um, it's using Israel and the occupation and its repressiveness to um, to open a window in terms of wider global processes. But I, I don't know. I hope I'm wrong. I, maybe I'm being cynical or whatever. But uh, my feeling is that um, a new one state with everybody together, the country, would not change tremendously uh, the economic structure of the country. I think the Palestinians would, would integrate into the military part of it. Maybe the military part would go down because there's no, you know, in other words, Israel could retool tool uh, into other aspects of uh, high-tech, you know, which, which it already has to some degree. Except the military is such a powerful incubator of, you know, because the military has the funds, the military has the laboratories, you know, that that high-tech companies really don't, the military brings the technology up to a certain level that then the commercial companies can, and the corporations can can use. So, uh, you know, I guess the downside for the Israeli or Israeli-Palestinian military industry would be you don't have any more wars you know, peace is a problem if you have a war-based economy, um, but, um, you know, and I think the Israelis and Palestinians together are, would, would be very, really be a power in terms of high-tech development. Um, so, maybe there'd be less of, a, of an Israeli, um, you know, the global Palestine part would maybe be reduced to some degree. Maybe Israel wouldn't be the, any more the go-to country for that kind of repression, but uh, but I still think there would be a fairly vital military industry, you know, the, and the military and high tech are just they're they're really the same industry, uh, and so uh, you know the going back and forth is very is very natural, so I don't I think in terms of wars against the people. Um, uh, the emergence of one state in Israel and Palestine uh, might reduce to some degree the profile of the Israeli military in in the world, but I don't think it would eliminate it, and I don't know if it would have a tremendously fundamental change in uh, in that situation.
0: Right. So then, if this, and it's funny, it's like a new problem, right? God, God forbid, but uh, if only. So if you had this this new this one state, then it would kind of shift, and the kind of overtly egregious things that Israel does to Palestinians now wouldn't be on as as mm-hmm. display as much, right? Um, it That's wouldn't right. happen as Hopefully much. it wouldn't oh, happen at all, at all. Right? At all? That's right. And so you have to make sure you like, get a lot out of it now. Luckily there's a lot of material. <laughs> but in terms of documenting it. But then, it, I mean, Israel is kind of, it, it's interesting because I think Israel's an outlier in terms of what it, like you said, gets away with. And it's it's not just because of guilt over the Holocaust. but as you know, you all know and the Marxists all know and superstructure and all that stuff, obviously, and like the cultural apparatus stuff, that uh, mm-hmm. ideological state apparatus stuff that uh, yeah. Althusser wrote, wrote about, like there are all these ideologies and things that are used to, to forward the goals of the state or of, right. the in, of industry, right? So an interesting thing with Israel that we see is that they really were trailblazers kind of in, in weaponizing identity politics. In a way that was not just like weaponizing them, mm. and in a way that didn't really have anything to necessarily do with, like, in a in a way that co-opted them, but weaponizing them in a way to do the exact opposite of what they're grounding themselves in, right? Which is like, we had t- very very terrible things happen to us; we're persecuted, therefore we are going to persecute these other people. It's not just like, oh, they're wasting it on some neoliberal agenda. Mm. It's actually mm. perpetuating a you know, suffering, inflicting suffering on other people. And I think that that gives Israel a very unique narrative and it definitely stifles some potential critics. Mm-hmm. But I remember actually talking to Juan Cole, who's, um, he's a Middle Easternist. Yeah. I don't know what the yeah. academic-
1: Michigan.
0: Michigan, yeah. Um, I thought you said Michigas at first. But um, <laughs> he, I remember talking to him and saying something about how unique Israel is because of the, the founded, um, of its founding, the Holocaust, and he was like, no, it's not really unique. It's just a question of um, chronology. And he was like, mm-hmm. every nation is founded by exterminating or displacing the people that are there. Mm-hmm. And it has a, like every nation when it's founded has an origin story that justifies right. it. And it was interesting because I, I, as a New York lefty Jew, of course, I'm, I'm like very eager to find the particular patho- pathology that I, I think is there. And I feel like almost a burden and duty to speak mm-hmm. about because mm-hmm. other people, when they do, they'll be called anti-Semites. And I, I'm fine with be, being called a self-loathing Jew.
1: Mm-hmm. But
0: then on, on this, at the same time, you have this, you know, this woke, wokeization, wokenization, where Israel loves saying that, well, we're the only place. And we saw this during the Democratic Platform Committee meetings where a, a Clinton appointee was saying that we shouldn't call the occupation occupation because... Tel Aviv is the only city in the Middle East, she said, where I can walk around holding my wife's hand. And Jim Mazagwi, who's Lebanese-American, mm-hmm. responded like, that's great. I can't even get through the airport um, when I go to Israel. And it to, that's there's such a, like, for, especially the people who pay attention to this and the misuse of, and, Hijacking identity politics. It, there's such trailblazers in this in a way. It's like they have such great. It's called pinkwashing too, right? When you yeah, So right. they do a lot of pinkwashing. Like, look how great it is to be LGBT in, in Israel. And yeah, there's
1: greenwashing. Right, making greenwashing. The, right. Making the it's a rainbow warm. washing,
0: exactly. That's how yeah, a, that's right. LGBTQ right. friendly is. Rainbow. And, uh, and so we can see how all of this is both part of the conversation, needs to be part of the conversation, but it's also like it's not about that. It's about the arms and it's about the security state. And mm-hmm. that gets. Kind of um, neglected mm-hmm, in mm-hmm. most of the narratives
1: about right, it. So. Right, right, right. Um, yeah, uh, you know. Again, I think there's these are two separate things, and I'm, you know, I'm hoping uh, just to to reiterate that, um, you know, we've gone beyond ideology to some degree. I mean, that's the, one of the problems with neoliberalism is that squelched all any kind of. Uh, of ideology to some degree Um, so that the um, you know resolving this the Arab-Israeli conflict as it's called uh, is not going to resolve a lot of the basic issues of um, socialism in the Middle East or being progressive in the Middle East Um, um, you know the uh, you know we all we kind of have an expectation of Palestinians as uh, a progressive maybe even socialist you know, revolution, liber- we talk about liberation, the Palestine Liberation Organization. But you know, when, when we were um, trying to you know, formulate our program, we went to the Palestinian constitution because we wanted to make our program as close to what's already been accepted by Palestinians you know, for, for themselves as much, and we couldn't, we couldn't use it. The Palestinian constitution, I mean the PLO, was a secular organization and they always talked about a secular state but if you look at the Palestinian Constitution it's actually based on Islamic law. Yeah but, but you know I, I remember the, Pal- the Christian community be very, being very upset about that. The point, the point is that I think there was a um, you know even though the PLO was a secular organization when it actually came to constructing a Palestinian state it went to, uh, to Islamic law, and uh, so, you know, those are, in other words, uh, I think that the fight for a progressive society in, in, in Israel, Palestine, and the Middle East is not gonna end with the establishment of a, of, a, of, of, of a single state. That state is still gonna need a lot of work, and we're still gonna have a lot of struggles.
4: Do you have anything on it?
1: To be, uh... Stephen uh, she is a professor at William and Mary, so he's uh, of Middle East studies. So he has a certain authority. So no, I think I
2: mean I think it's hard to if you talk about the democratic state mean it's going to be hard to gain purchase um, from uh, Palestinians and occupation in Gaza and in the West Bank. If you can't. So, if you can't envision that transition as an alleviation of the misery that they feel daily, That's right. which includes an economic um, uh, desperation, right. uh, political oppression, That's right. um, you know, the occupation. Uh, as you know, saturates life, um, but also in you know zone in the zone A. So there's um, you know nepotism, corruption of the Palestinian authority. So if you and this is the conversations that I've had about the one state um, uh, possibility with Palestinians and West Bank, which is if you are promising us to trade two ruling classes That's right. for one unified ruling class mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and no conditions changed then it's not really an option right. so, and so I don't know if I'm encouraged by the vision of saying okay we have one political unity that ensures the dominant class domination exactly. the Sorry. Right. or of resources and well i mean, we have that in the united states so
0: that's all the that's kind of what you're saying that's right but then i don't also want to suggest that like because i of course not i mean there's it's not like there's been a really dangerous weaponization of that well i don't live there or i'm not from there right because then people are like listen to it's like okay you want us mm-hmm. to listen to certain ones right but so i was going to say that i also don't feel totally it's easy for me here to be like well, if we don't get to the root of the neoliberal, uh, gen, meanwhile, like kids are dying, being shot at, mm-hmm. and it's also hard to compare it because of course it's horrible here in the United States and there's police violence, and thanks in large part to Israel and you know, our special mm-hmm. relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, although that doesn't matter either because they do it with Saudi Arabia. So, right. um, but it is, it's like there, there is, I thought when you started talking, I thought you were going to say from the people I've spoken to, they don't care about the class stuff. They just want to have to stop mm-hmm. being killed while they try to get to the hospital or something. That was just like, that's not relevant. Mm-hmm. I happen to think that, that has nothing mm-hmm. to do with the reality, but that's what, I, so how do we balance those two things? So it doesn't feel mm-hmm. like we're asking people to wait, like table that, the whole suffering thing, that, that's not just like what you're saying, trading up a different system of oppression and devastation, economic devastation and, and humiliation, mm-hmm. but also be sensitive to the fact that there is this apartheid state, right? And I don't know, mm-hmm. I have no idea what most people in that apartheid state want. Living at the at, in the bad mm-hmm. on the bad side mm-hmm.
2: of it. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, I don't want to no. just no, I would say you know one thing uh, out of my conversations with folks in the West Bank um, is that they certainly don't want. I mean, there was a moment of hope in with Oslo, even though a lot of us were like, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but um, folks don't want to fall into that trap the second time. Right. I mean, and what, how people live, in. Now, Israel is always pointing like, well, you know, you know, it's the Palestinian authorities' problem, or their fault, mm-hmm. and the people in Gaza, it's because the Palestinian authorities' story, so that, I'm not saying that by any means, but Palestinians effectively, in many ways, are under two sets of occupations. One, the master mm-hmm. the master occupation because the, 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 the end all and be all is Israel. Whether even, whatever zone you're in, you're under Palestinian uh, uh, Israel is that occupation and mm-hmm. it affects you every day, whether you're inside the center of uh, Allah as we've seen mm-hmm. recently, they can come in and go out at will on um, on a co- you know on a college campus inside the Palestinian yeah. controlled area, the head of the student union, the president of the student body is come, they come in with military force and take them out within Palestinian controlled area. So this is, you're absolutely right. But On the other hand, there's also a sense of, there's actually a sense of desperation because those people who are supposed to be advocating for you the Palestinian Authority are so correct, are so actually already allied with, in many ways, the, the Israeli ruling class, and in fact, that the Israeli ruling class had gone so deep, and they can't even make these alliances anymore. Um, so I mean, it's very, very recent. Until very recently, that they discontinued the security. All this sort of stuff was happening. In, in Jerusalem goes, you know, in, you know, wherever, and the problem is is that they're still in a, a security cooperation agreement. So that's that's what I, I was just trying to, 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 to to, to, to inter- intervene in that, what is this, how does the, the one democratic state offer true change conditions on the ground? for right, right. That's right.
1: And we haven't gotten there yet. Right. We, we're still focused on the, uh, on the political side, I think.
0: But you want to have that in mind, right? So that no, you, no, of course. Yeah, we yeah, have I mean, I'm not to not like that. You're yeah, yeah, way yeah, on course, more on top of so that. Um, so I think there's another question, and then...
2: So you would say that, um, I mean when you talk about Endgame, I mean for us here in this room, for example, um, would you say that one of the most important things we could do would be to stop U.S. military um, collaboration with uh, Israel? Um, through the kind of contracts you're talking about, or, or even just through the military packages, or would that make a difference? Would that help, or
1: would that be a big step forward? No, oh, that would make a huge difference, of course. In other words, we're good at the BD at the BD part. We're not very good at the S, which is sanctions, and sanctions are mainly governmental, and that's that's one level. The U.S. campaign does have. It's not really a campaign It's sort of a they do say we should stop try to, to to publicize how much money the united states gives israel and say we should stop that it's it's short of a full-fledged campaign but at least they brought that up but that would be, make a huge difference of course if that was a um, you know i mean if that was a bds target the s you know sanction israel you know don't buy their technologies don't give them privileged access to American military technologies. That's really what gives Israel the edge in the market. Um, selling and buying arms and so on would be, would be a tremendous thing. Even if it didn't happen, uh, just simply raising that whole issue um, would, 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 uh, would open the discussion. There's one other thing we talked about a little bit before over dinner, actually, um, that could be a, a BDS a kind of a target. And that is, you know, what Israel's doing in its in the occupation is illegal in international law. You know, there is an occupation that Israel denies, first of all. So that Israel says the fourth Geneva Convention, which which protects people living under occupation and limits the occupying power, um, and th- that Israel is in violation of every article of um, is enforceable. It has sanctions connected to it. In other words, you don't just have to get unilateral American sanctions. International law that exists, that Israel violates, is there in place. And it, uh, now the problem is the only, the way you enforce the Fourth Geneva Convention through sanctions, and even you know up to military intervention, um, is through the Security Council. Security Council has to pass. Well, that can't happen because of the American veto. And often in Security Councils, you had, you've had you had votes of 14 to one. You get, so if there was a focused campaign on um, bringing uh, a resolution before the Security Council that the fourth Geneva Convention applies, and this could be an international campaign, especially in the countries that are members of the Security Council, you know, uh, That that the Fortune Convention applies, and it should be enforced, and then have a concentrated campaign in the United States that the American government would not veto that. You see, that would if that would if something like that would happen, that would change the whole situation. You know, if in fact the international community was or the UN was allowed to enforce the Fortune Convention, especially through sanctions. So it isn't necessarily that you have to get the American government to sanction, but if you just got the American government just to let the UN do the dirty work, (laughs) in a sense, I think that would make a huge difference. So that's another example of a BDS target and campaign that could be used that hasn't been used yet. Trump gives you, uh, Sarah Huckabee gives you two, two questions. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: I mean, because there's a lot lot of times people say, well, it doesn't matter, Israel's military is so strong, they could get by without the United States uh, military assistance. Um, but if the United States really cut off its military
3: assistance, <laughs> it would make a big difference, wouldn't it, in Israel, what Israel could do?
1: Uh, first of all the united states gives israel 4 billion dollars a year which would be uh, a dent in israel's budget if it, tri- if, it, if it if it i mean it would that would uh, i think uh, uh, have a big influence more so would be if israel was denied like european countries are denied privileged access to american military technology you see that's what uh, in a sense, that's what offsets the money part of it. Because it's true, Israel has some resources and it could, without the four billion, it could still do quite a bit. But without access to cutting edge American military technology, Israel would be very hard pressed to, to keep its, uh, its high tech industry at, you know, at the level that it is. So I think that that's, uh, and that also you know, could be a, a BDS target. It doesn't cost anything. Um, and um, and in a sense, uh, you'd almost be equalizing Israel's relations to to the rest of the world because Europe, Israel, the United States' closest allies, don't have access to American military technology like Israel does.
0: Has Bernie Sanders fairly not at all scathing <laughs> criticism of um, Netanyahu or Israel? Has that? changed anything do you think it, has anyone felt emboldened by that in no, no no it's just no it's just
1: he's not taken seriously and i think israel feels very confident in the american support that it has there's another lara more oh.
0: lady in red <laughs> exciting <to> <laughs> and then you're signing books right
1: I'm willing to yeah, sign them. Yeah, so those. after that, you so have if you have it, more questions, But you have to yeah. buy them first. Okay, so you <laughs> gather around there. Right, yeah. Nora? You
0: can buy them after. Actually. Yeah, that's fine.
4: yeah. Time, yeah.
1: Okay. Uh, so
4: um, I'm a clinical psychologist by profession, and my work is on group processes, structural racism, decoloniality. So when I look at this, I can't help but okay. also think of that. Good. And <laughs> ten is a beautifully round number. <laughs> but and I, you know, ideally, as I think about it this way, I let my sort of fantasy go to an ideal place of um, the psychic. Reparations and psychic interventions that go alongside Mm -hmm. a one democratic state, right? right. right. Um, right. In the long term, and the greatest example of this is the United States, because you know um, slavery is abolished, and and we still see the wrecking effects of what happens and what lasts, and how colonial subjects come to internalize the colonial power, even after colonialism is done yes. so to speak so the material realities aren't the only thing mm-hmm. that yes. are there right it's that lived experience and when one is um, sort of um, infantilized uh, denigrated consistently systemically these things have lasting effects that are centuries um, and I I think the only way to sort of truly see a future is to um, have these things exist together, right? So like you say that we make uh, inroads with the BDS movement, I would also say make inroads with sort of mental health professionals and people who are doing these sorts of things because there's no way truly structurally forward if we're not thinking about it in that way as well.
1: I mean, I think our program reflects um, maybe, uh, to some degree, the Palestinian priorities. First, let's deal with this occupation with the political issues and you know, house demolitions and all that stuff. Then let's get on, you know, maybe to economic things. and then you know, let's get on to closure, reconciliations, uh, healing, you know, including including the right of return. we do relate to that to some degree in the thing about the right of return, of reintegrating. Let me, we're, we're finishing, so let me, because, you know, the problem when you're working politically with an activist group is, I mean, I, I don't know how to say this without sounding stupid, but, you know, my advantage in my work is that I'm an academic, I have a PhD, I'm a professor, I'm an anthropologist, but I'm also an activist. And that's not a usual thing. So the people I deal with we put this together are activists or people, you know, coming that are busy, that have jobs that are coming to it. They're not they're not academics. So sometimes it's hard to get this kind of a discussion going. This kind of an evening would be very hard to do with activists. They just don't have the patience for this, at least in our world. For these, some of these, I mean, maybe they'll, you know, they would invite uh, someone to come and, and talk for an evening, but to have an ongoing discussion and getting into these issues is hard to do with activists. And on the other hand, the academics that have that um, tend to be disconnected uh, from the activists. And, and so, you know, I think that, that that's, a, that's a process. But if I would just summarize the way I would do it, I'm not representing our group right now but I, I hear you and, I, and I've, I've tried to think that through. If this is a settler colonial uh, um, situation, the only way to resolve it isn't through negotiations and compromise like a conflict, it's to decolonize. And and, and that includes the psychic part and, and, and the closure. So I would see a process of three things, if, I was asked how do we end this whole thing it seems to me there's three there's three things that have to be done in mounting order of difficulty first of all the settlers the Israelis the Israeli Jews have to acknowledge the existence of the indigenous population of the Palestinians their existence their national existence uh, and uh, their narrative and also their agency because what's happened is even if israel sat across the table with the palestinians palestinians never had the right to say no or to present their own ideas they had they had the right to say yes to what israel wanted or israel's going to do this unilaterally so that's one thing that that's never been done israel has never recognized either the existence or the agency the sovereignty of a palestinian people then secondly, is what we've talked about in this plan. A political system that dismantles the structures of domination, creates a level playing field, gives equal rights to people. In other words, you dismantle the, 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 the structures of domination and control. And that's, that's the more the political part. And then the third part, I think, gets into what you're talking about. The third part is the closure. And in a settler colonial situation, the only ones that can declare it over, that we have reached a post-colonial relationship where we can normalize and you settlers can be nativized in a way. That can only be done by the indigenous population. So this can only be resolved if the Palestinians in a sense recognize the Israelis. And so the third part of it is, and this is the hardest part, in order for that to happen, the settlers have to acknowledge the crimes they committed to the indigenous population and take responsibility for it. So if you do those three things, um, you acknowledge the existence and the rights and the agency of the indigenous, you dismantle the structures of domination and create a a more egalitarian, inclusive political system, and you, you acknowledge and accept responsibility for the crimes that you committed, then there's kind of a deal. If you've done those three things, the indigenous then say, okay, you know, from our point of view, there's a closure here, you know, and, and we're willing now to declare that we're in a post-colonial situation and we can normalize relations with you. So that I think that, though, that certainly that's, that's the la- and that's the hardest part, because for Israeli Jews and Zionists to acknowledge what they've done to Palestinians, is harder than than getting to one state politically but i think if those three things happen that's the the uh recipe for decolonization and then we can go on and normalize relations
0: i would say there's like there's an american version and the israeli version of non-apologizing which uh-huh. is like so the americans are like no nah. okay and this is the, the voice i'm hearing is the voice of certain girls i went to high school with but it's like no, like in 1948, like everyone wanted to go. They like all left on their own. Yeah. And I went to school on the upper side. And then the Israelis are like, yeah, it uh, was a ethnic cleansing. And if we had done more, it would uh, be no problem today.
1: We never finished 1948.
0: Yeah. Right. And it's so to me, I'm always like, I actually prefer just in terms of conversation, the latter, because you're agreeing about the facts on the ground. Mm-hmm. You're just mm-hmm. not agreeing about hu- humanity. Um, but it is—it's a—it fun, is funny the different flavors that each one brings to it. So you may have to have different scripts in each country. Anyway, but um, thank you so much. Where can people find you and your work? Um,
1: um, you can always write to me. Okay. I'm mean, I, I, I won't reply the same day, maybe. But Jeff Helper at gmail.com. You know, we also have a. We the one Democratic State campaign doesn't have a website yet. We're working on it. We have a Facebook page, One Democratic State Campaign, but um, ICAD, my organization, the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, does have a website, so you can look us up and communicate that way. So thank right. and thank you to um, McNally yeah. Jackson and Nora and everybody here and Katie, of course, and my non-relative. Yeah. And to all of all you, the for helpers ha- who made for, this possible for having the evening. Thank yeah,
0: thank you. You can find me at Twitter at Katie Helps, by the way, if you want. And I might, I'll might. i have you on my show, my podcast. And thank you, everyone, for coming. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to The Katie Helper Show. You can always support The Katie Helper Show at patreoncom The Katie Show. Again, that's patreoncom The Katie Helper Show. And dropping soon will be a bonus episode with Adam Johnson, where we talk about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict's representation in the media and the Ilan Omar controversy.